Welcome back to Ghosts of Arlington, and thank you for joining me for episode 102, A Family Legacy in Korea. Well, dear listener, after that four-week hiatus, it is good to be back. Of course, now none of my primary recording equipment wants to work, but no matter, my backup equipment, my quote-unquote old equipment, should be more than sufficient for this week. Hopefully just this week, but you never know. Part of my time off was for the annual trip I take with my dad, uncles, and cousins. It was wonderful to see all those knuckleheads again, this year at Redwood National Park in Northern California. I was also able to stop by Crater Lake National Park in Oregon and was very excited to cross not one, but two more national parks off my list. So a big shout out and thanks to Alan, Jono, Pat, Brian, and Sean for their hard work in planning this year's retreat. And for those who weren't there this year, We all hope to see you next year. Another part of the time off was spent on a work trip in South Korea. While there, I was able to visit the U.S. 2nd Infantry Division Museum at Camp Humphreys. Upon entering the museum, I was greeted by a junior soldier who asked me to sign a visitor log and explain the flow of the museum. The first exhibit that I saw highlighted the distinguished service history of the Collins family in the 2nd Infantry Division, one of whom has already been highlighted on the podcast. When I learned that the other three are also interred at Arlington, well, I couldn't resist sharing those stories. So today's podcast is inspired by my recent trip. James Lawton Collins was born the third of nine children in a large Irish Catholic family in Algiers, Louisiana, just across the Mississippi River from New Orleans on December 10, 1882. I look forward to all of my listeners in Louisiana correcting how I pronounced Algiers. I'm sure there is a different pronunciation for it. And don't even bother with Nolens. Yes, yes, I know. James' father, Jeremiah, immigrated from County Cork, Ireland as a young boy in the early 1860s to join the rest of his family who had already come to America. Shortly after immigrating, he enlisted in the Union Army where he served as a drummer boy and then, at age 16, helped to drive a herd of horses into Texas to replace cavalry mounts which had been lost in the war. James Collins was not tall, about 5 feet 6 inches or 168 centimeters tall, but he was agile, athletic, and great with horses. 
After completing his primary education, he enrolled at Tulane University, but his mother's uncle, the mayor of New Orleans, was asked by a local member of Congress if there was a bright young man who could, quote, stay the course at West Point. When James learned of the opportunity, possibly inspired by his father's stories with the Union Army, he decided to attend the U.S. Military Academy and join the class of 1907. After graduation, the new officer was sent to the Philippines and served in the 8th Cavalry and then as Major General John J. Pershing's aide-de-camp during the Philippine insurrection. After his service in the Philippines, he continued to follow Pershing, serving with him chasing Pancho Villa in Mexico and then to France for World War I. With the rapid increase in the military during the Great War, Collins did not remain an aide for long. He was promoted to lieutenant colonel after a decade of service and was given command of an artillery battalion. After the war, he served as army attaché to the Kingdom of Italy. Just prior to America's entry into World War II, he was promoted to Major General and given command of the 2nd Infantry Division, which is why he has a place of prominence in the 2ID Museum. He had two senior commands during World War II. First, the Puerto Rico Department and second, the 5th Service Command, based in Columbus, Ohio. He retired in 1946. Major General James Lawton Collins died on June 30, 1963, at age 80. He is buried at Arlington National Cemetery in Section 34, Grave 121-Alpha. James was not Jeremiah Collins' only son to attend West Point or to become a general officer. Joseph Lawton Collins was also born in Algiers, Louisiana, on May 1, 1896, the sixth of those nine children previously mentioned. Joseph's uncle was still mayor of New Orleans when it was his turn to go to college, but unlike his older brother, he needed a little more help getting into the military academy. Joseph's appointment was as an alternate, but after the first choice failed to qualify, he was able to get a spot in the class of 1917. His class graduated early because of America's entry into World War I. He was commissioned an infantry officer, but because of additional training the Army wanted him to complete, he did not make it over to Europe before the end of the Great War, but he did command a battalion in France in 1919 and served as a staff officer in the U.S. Army occupying Germany in 1920 and 1921. After returning to the United States, Joseph served as a professor in West Point's chemistry department, was promoted to captain, and then taught tactics at the infantry school at Fort Benning, Georgia. After promotion to major, he spent some time in the Philippines and, on the eve of World War II, returned stateside and taught at the U.S. Army War College, where, in the span of about six months, he was promoted to lieutenant colonel and then colonel. 
Two months after Pearl Harbor, Joseph was made a brigadier general, and three months after that, a major general. Yeah, promotions used to come fast and furious in wartime. In May 1942, the same time he became a major general, he was also given command of the 25th Infantry Division out of Hawaii. At 46 years old, he was the youngest division commander in the army. He took the 25th from Hawaii into action against the Japanese on Guadalcanal and then New Georgia, both in the Pacific. During the Guadalcanal campaign, he earned the nickname Lightning Joe for his dash and aggression. It was also a play on the 25th Infantry Division's nickname, Tropic Lightning. After his successful actions in the Pacific, Lightning Joe was transferred to the European Theater of Operation, where he commanded the 7th Corps in the Allied invasion of Normandy. He would command the Corps for the rest of the war. At age 47, he was now the youngest Corps commander in the Army. 7th Corps played a major role in the Normandy landings, the subsequent breakout from Normandy, the Battle of the Bulge, and the invasion of Germany. As one of the few senior U.S. commanders to serve in both the Pacific and in Europe, he described the enemies in the two theaters of war this way. The German was far more skilled than the Japanese. Most of the Japanese we fought were not skilled men, not skilled leaders. The German had a professional army. The Japanese didn't know how to handle combined arms the artillery in support of the infantry, to the same extent we did. They were gallant soldiers, though, they fought very, very hard, but they were not nearly as skillful as the Germans, but the German didn't have the tenacity of the Japanese. After the war, the Germans said they considered Lightning Joe one of the top two corps commanders on the Western Front and five-star general Omar Bradley said that despite his youth, if they had created another army-level command in Europe, an army commander has two or more corps under his command, it would have gone to Joseph. After the war, he was promoted to lieutenant general and served as the deputy commanding general and chief of staff of the army ground forces from August to December 1945, then director of information, what today would be Chief of Public Affairs, from 1946 to 1947. From 47 to 49, he was the Vice Chief of Staff of the U.S. Army and promoted to full general. In August 1949, he became the Army Chief of Staff and served as the senior U.S. Army officer for the entirety of the Korean War, which began on June 25, 1950. His service as Army Chief of Staff during the Korean War is why he has a place of prominence in the 2nd Infantry Division Museum. 2ID was one of the major Army units engaged in the Korean War. As a wartime Chief of Staff, his primary responsibility was to ensure that adequately trained and equipped soldiers were sent to fight in Korea. He directed the Army's operations of the railroads, brought the 1st Special Forces Group into the order of battle, and was closely associated with the development of the Army's contribution 
to the newly established North American Treaty Organization, or NATO. After the Korean War ended in July 1953, he became the U.S. representative to the NATO Standing Group and Military Committee until 1954. He became a special representative of the United States to Vietnam in 1955 and then returned to his NATO positions. He retired from active service in March 1956 after nearly 40 years of military service. General Joseph Lawton Lightning Joe Collins died in Washington, D.C. on September 12, 1987, at the age of 91. He is buried at Arlington National Cemetery in Section 30, Grave 422. James Lawton Collins Jr. was born in El Paso, Texas on November 5, 1917 to future Army Major General James Collins Sr., the first officer featured in this episode. James Jr. followed his father, James Sr., and his uncle, Lightning Joe, to West Point. He graduated in 1939 and joined the field artillery. James Jr. learned about Pearl Harbor while serving as the aide-de-camp for the commanding general of the Puerto Rico Department, a.k.a. his father. On January 1, 1942, he joined the 25th Field Artillery Battalion, and a month later he was promoted to captain and took command of Bravo Battery. By October 1943, he was a major commanding the 957th Field Artillery Battalion, which had been training in the U.S. and was now on its way to England. He was promoted to lieutenant colonel on May 1, 1944, and on June 13, the 957th landed at Utah Beach a week after the D-Day operation in support of the 7th Corps. Yes, that's the corps commanded by his uncle. But to be fair, while it might have been nepotism to serve as his father's aide-de-camp in Puerto Rico, it probably wasn't when he was a battalion commander in his uncle's corps. While fighting in France, the 957th suffered 35 casualties, including 13 killed, when it was mistakenly bombed by U.S. aircraft. James Jr. was one of those wounded, but remained at his post. The 957th participated in all the major campaigns of the 7th Corps, including the breakout from Normandy, the Battle of the Bulge, and the invasion of Germany. After the war, James Jr. remained in Europe until mid-1947. From 1947 to 1950, he returned to the U.S., studied at the Naval War College and the University of Virginia, and taught at the U.S. Army Command and General Staff College. From 1951 to 1954, he returned to Europe, where he served in London and then NATO, before returning stateside to attend the Army War College. From 55 to 58, he served in the office of the Chief of Staff. A polyglot, fluent in French, Italian, German, and Spanish, 
He commanded the Army Language School, the Defense Language Institute, in Monterey, California from 1959 to 1963, and was the first director of the Washington, D.C. Defense Language Site. He then served two years as a special assistant to General William Westmoreland in Vietnam before returning to Washington as Deputy Assistant Chief of Staff for Intelligence for three years, and then a final three years as the commander of the 5th Corps Artillery in West Germany. James Jr. retired from the Army as a Brigadier General in 1970, but was recalled to active duty as the Chief of Military History. In this role, he oversaw the production of a wide range of works on American military history. His works include War in Peacetime, The History and Lessons of Korea, and several works on World War II and Vietnam. He served as President of the U.S. Commission on Military History and the Council on America's Military Past. He was also a member of the International Commission of Military Historians that investigated the wartime service of Kurt Waldheim, former President of Austria and Secretary General of the UN, which found evidence of war crimes during his World War II service in the Wehrmacht. After retiring a second time in 1982, he began a new career as a viticulturalist, becoming a member of a Virginia wine cooperative and grower of grapes in Middleburg, Virginia, where he died on May 6, 2002, at age 84. Brigadier General James Lawton Collins, Jr. is buried at Arlington National Cemetery in Section 4, Grave 970. The Brigadier General James L. Collins Book Prize for Military History is named in his honor. The fourth and final person on the wall at the 2nd Infantry Division Museum was the son of Major General James Sr., and the brother of Brigadier General James Jr., Air Force Major General Michael Collins. Yes, that Michael Collins. Yes, sir. Reading you loud and clear. 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 The clock has started. The clock has started. Five, five, four, four, three, three, two, one. The Michael Collins, who played a major role in the space race and was eulogized back in episode 66. Like his father, uncle, and brother, Michael Collins also went to West Point. He attended after the Air Force was created in 1947, but before that service got its own academy in 1954. When he graduated, his father was a retired major general his uncle was chief of staff, and his brother was already a colonel. 
He wanted to make his own name for himself, and he also wanted to be a pilot, so when he was given the chance to commission into the Air Force, he took it. He still ended up with a cool connection to the 2nd Infantry Division, though. When Michael Collins orbited the moon during the Apollo 11 mission, while Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin were down on the surface, he carried one of the two ID patches his father wore while commanding the 2nd Infantry Division into space with him. James Sr. had passed away six years before Apollo 11. Though I have already eulogized Michael Collins, I will reiterate that after he passed away on April 28, 2001, he was interred at Arlington National Cemetery in Section 51, Grave 2891. While the story of four Collinses across two generations, who all became general officers and who all had a connection, in one way or another, to the 2nd Infantry Division was cool, I learned another story at the museum that really blew me away. Fortunately, this story also involves a ghost of Arlington, so I can share it as I wrap up today's podcast. This story takes place in World War II and surrounds Army Sergeant Robert Hopkins, the enlisted chaplain from the 38th Field Artillery Battalion, 2nd Infantry Division. That right there is the first new thing I learned, that at one point in time there were enlisted chaplains. I have only known about commissioned chaplains and enlisted chaplain assistants, but even the display at the Army-run museum calls Hopkins an enlisted chaplain, not a chaplain assistant. Sergeant Hopkins was captured in Krenkelt, Belgium by the German army in December 1944 during the Battle of the Bulge, and was force-marched with 2,300 other American POWs to the German POW camp Stalag 8 Alpha near the Polish border. Hopkins said, Within two weeks of being a prisoner, it was my sad job to bury over 700 American soldiers. Not because they were all worn out, not because they were ready to die, but because somebody didn't want them to live. The Germans would shoot them for sport. He officiated the first formal military funeral service inside Germany for American POW Bruce Schalm in January 1945. The Germans agreed to allow Schalm to be buried in a makeshift casket made of boards bound with wire. According to Hopkins, prison corpses were normally stripped and tossed in an open pit. They were given permission to use a U.S. flag, but as no one had one, they improvised. Hopkins recalled, the flag was made from two sugar bags which two British soldiers stole from the camp. It was painted with blue and red dye mixed with blood, which was easy to come by. Soldiers were always bleeding to death. Prison guards photographed the funeral service and intended to use them for propaganda purposes, but POW stole the pictures and the negatives which infuriated the guards. 
Three days later, I watched two British soldiers being shot to death by having bullets fired into their feet, then every six inches up their bodies until they died. Their last words were, Don't let them find the photos or the flag. Use it for the memory of all who die. When Hopkins was transferred to another Stalag, he took the flag with him. Not only did he use the flag in more than 300 memorial services, he also used it to record the names of all of his fellow prisoners until he escaped. After the war, he returned to the U.S. and became a Methodist minister in Natural Bridge, Virginia. Hopkins' son Norman, who served as an army sergeant in Vietnam, said his father often told stories of the flag which sat in a cupboard in their home while he was growing up. When I was young, I used to see the flag and hold it in my hands. Dad would tell me about the British soldiers who got shot because they would not give it up. The flag meant a lot to my dad, and it means a lot to me. In 1979, Hopkins donated the flag and one of his Bibles to the 2nd Infantry Division Museum, which at that time was located at Camp Red Cloud between the DMZ and Seoul. After Hopkins died on June 24, 2004, at age 85, the decision was made to use the makeshift flag one more time, its first funeral since World War II. Museum technician Inka Koloski prepared the flag for its journey. It was shipped from Korea to Virginia and draped over Hopkins' casket for his Arlington burial. During the funeral service, the flag was folded by an honor guard and returned to Korea and the museum. Today, the flag remains in the same folded position in which it was placed nearly 20 years ago. Sergeant Robert James Hopkins was interred at Arlington National Cemetery in Section 69, Grave 3420. I will post the pictures I took of Hopkins' flag and Bible and the 2ID patch that Michael Collins took with him into space on the podcast website, www.ghostsofarlingtonpodcast.com. Speaking of which, if you need more Ghosts of Arlington content in your life, you can find photos related to all podcast episodes on that website. And if you've ever wanted to ask me, Hey Jackson, you have no advertisers and no advertising budget to make others aware of the podcast. Is there anything I can do to help increase your listeners? Well, first off, thanks for asking. And yes, there are a few ways to help. You can tell your friends and anyone else you think might like the podcast about it. And you can leave a five-star rating and review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And if you're not an Apple listener, after leaving a review where you do listen, there is nothing stopping you from also creating an Apple account and leaving a rating at Apple Podcasts. Rating and reviews on that site are by far the most helpful to a podcast, especially a small, independent podcast like mine. And as always, in the words of friend of the podcast Ben Franklin, Fear not death, for the sooner we die, the longer we shall be immortal. <laughs>